It's a privilege though that I can preach uh, before you on this last Sunday. And as we already said, we are really sad uh, to be leaving you here at Snack. Um, we have loved our time here and we really love you guys. But what could be more fitting than preaching on Judah's deportation to Babylon right before we're deported from the promised land here back to Melbourne. Uh, Let's pray for our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word never returns empty, but that it always accomplishes what you want it to do. So we pray this morning that you'd help us to dig into your word deeply, and we pray that you'd help us to cling to your promises for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm not sure if you're a fan of the Avengers movies, or if you've heard of them. Who's heard of Avengers movies? Probably most people. Uh, But don't worry, even if you haven't heard of them, uh, you could probably guess the plot, right? They're they're superhero movies with, you know, your supervillains and your battles. And how do most superhero movies end? The good guy wins, right? The good guy wins, the bad guy loses. Happy ending. Or, you know, sort of as Disney movies and fairy tales like to say, they all lived happily ever after. That's why back in 2018, there was this movie, Avengers Infinity War, where all the sort of separate superheroes came for this epic showdown against an epic villain. And when it came out, everyone was a little bit stunned, I think, because do you know how it ended? It ended in resounding defeat. You know, all these sort of Gen Z youngsters are walking out of cinemas shell-shocked because they've never had a movie without a happy ending. People are left stunned. What do you do when the story ends in defeat? It makes you think, can you even remember the last book or the last movie that you saw or read that just didn't end happily? Now, I hope the link to our passage today seems pretty clear. The Two Kings has an Avengers Infinity War sort of ending. And rather than sort of walk out of church today, you know, with the happy music playing after this triumphant end, we might be left scratching our heads a little. But, as always, God is showing us important things about himself and about his promises in his word. So let's dig in. Well, today we're going to be looking at more than what was just read as well. So we're going to be looking from chapter 23, verse 31. So make sure to keep your Bibles open in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, I'm sure Dave will still be willing to deliver one to you, although his delivery costs might be rising with each minute. So yeah, do keep your Bibles open. We're going to be starting in 23:31. We're at point one on your handouts, why we shouldn't be surprised by God's judgment. Now, as our passage starts today, in verse 31, we're back to the same old predictable evil kings, right? It was a real breath of fresh air to have Hezekiah and Josiah, wasn't it? Finally, a king who trusts. Finally, a king who obeys. But as Judah spirals down toward destruction and exile, the list of kings goes that way too. There's Jehoahaz, there's Jehoiakim, there's Jehoiachin. Sounds like someone got stuck on the J page of the baby book. Uh, And lastly, to mix it up a little bit, Zedekiah. But they all get that familiar line repeated about them, don't they? Look at 23.32. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestors had done. Now, a couple of these kings only lasted three months, so they're not really worth our time. But Jehoiakim and Zedekiah managed to reign for 11 years each. 
And what we know mostly about them mostly comes from the book of Jeremiah. But it's interesting, they're basically anti-Josiah and anti-Hezekiah. You see, remember, Josiah, he was the king who, upon finding God's word, repented and committed himself to obeying it. But Jehoiakim, do you know what he did? When God's word was read to him, he ripped it up bit by bit and he threw it into the fire. Just brazen, defiant wickedness. He didn't read, repent and obey, he threw it in the fire. And if Hezekiah was characterised by trusting God against all odds when he had an army on his doorstep, well, Zedekiah is just spineless. Any given day he'll be trusting something different. He doesn't trust what Jeremiah tells him. Instead, he prefers to trust in Egypt and false prophets more than Yahweh. But if you just scan through from the end of chapter 23 through chapter 24, you see in the hands of these evil kings, Judah's situation just gets worse and worse. Right? They kind of progressively get more downtrodden by the different nations. See, initially, that's from paying tax to Egypt under Jehoahaz and then to becoming a vassal to Babylon under Jehoiakim. Then in chapter 24, verse 10, you see 10,000 captives are taken away in the temple and palace treasures under Jehoiachin. And then finally, as we had read out, under Zedekiah, Jerusalem is destroyed and everyone is taken away. And look, as tragic as this is, it's completely unsurprising, isn't it? We could see it coming a mile away. It would be a bit boring, but this whole chapter could just be these words. God does what he has repeatedly promised he will do. And we could go to any number of places through 1 and 2 Kings to show that, right? Back in chapter 22, Huldah's prophecy of delayed judgment to Josiah. Back in chapter 21, we had God's response to Manasseh's evil. If you remember back to Hezekiah, he, he showed off his temple and palace treasury to Babylon foolishly, and God promised that they would come and take it away. But let's go back even further. This is going to be on the screen. But let's look at 1 Kings 9. All right from the start, this has been so very clear from God. He promised this to Solomon. He said this, If you or your sons turn away from following me and do not keep my commands, my statutes that I've set before you, and if you go and serve other gods and worship them, I will cut off Israel from the land I gave them, and I will reject the temple I have sanctified for my name. Israel will become an object of scorn and ridicule among all the peoples. So it's not a surprise. God is simply being faithful to his promises. And our passage says that too. Look at verse 2 in chapter 24, 24 verse 2. Why is all this happening to Judah? The Lord sent Chaldean, Aramean, Moabite and Ammonite raiders against Jehoiakim. He sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, this happened to Judah at the Lord's command to remove them from his sight. It was because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also because of all the innocent blood he had shed. He had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not forgive. They're pretty confronting words, aren't they, that last bit? The Lord would not forgive. But we need to see, it's not saying that God is an unforgiving God or that he's unwilling to forgive those who humbly repent and turn to him. We've seen that all through 1 and 2 Kings, that he is very quick to forgive those who repent. But it's saying that for those who persist in sin, who persist in worshipping idols, there comes a day when enough is enough. 
and God was clear about this from the start, you persist in idolatry and sin, and judgment will come. And so what we're seeing in our passage today is that God's judgment is simply him being faithful to his promises. Now, I had, I had a removalist booked for this coming Wednesday, and I emphasise had, uh, because they called me last week and they said, we need to come Tuesday. So going, all right, uh, can you do that? So I hang up the phone and I think, well, what are you going to do when someone says that? You, you go trawling through the terms and conditions, try to bring up the confirmation email. And I think what I realised is actually, as I read more of the detail, they're barely promising me anything at all. And what's worse, it looks like they can basically change their word whenever they want. They can turn up at any time, they can deliver at any time. And I don't know about you, but when you sort of find out that someone's promised you something that shoddy, that they're that unreliable, you start to get pretty frustrated, don't you? It turns out that their word was pretty flexible to begin with. It's infuriating, right? They're unreliable, it's deceptive even. And while that's a pretty silly example, when it comes to God's judgment... I wonder if we kind of wish he would be like the removalists. You know, suddenly we think, well, it would be better if God was a con man and he was just, you know, he's pulling our leg. He's just hamming it up a bit. Maybe he's just exaggerating. But we want to have our cake and eat it too, don't we? We're more than happy for God to be reliable and steadfast and immovable in his promises to bless us. Promises that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Promises that all who trust in Jesus will be forgiven and given eternal life. Yeah, they're the sort of ones we want to hold on to and and memorise and have tattooed on our arms. They're incredible. They're marvellous. And and we should love those promises. But then sometimes we're shocked when God's faithful to his promises to judge. But as we've seen throughout two kings, God is a God of grace and of justice. And both are truly good. Good. You see, we can't choose which promises of God we want to come true. God's word is unstoppable. And that's a good thing too, right? God always delivers on what he's promised. He's not some unreliable removalist. Now, I'm not suggesting we just become doom and gloom Christians who focus only on God's promises to judge. But I imagine for you guys, like me, uh, these can be an element that we kind of ignore. And we see that in our conversations with people, right? Often we're making excuses for God's judgment or we ignore it or we just don't talk about it at all. And so I wonder, why not this week as you pray or as you read God's word and as you thank him for his promises to bless, why not also thank him for his promises to bring justice? Thank him that he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world. And believe it or not, that's what we're already saying when we pray the Lord's Prayer. When we're saying, your kingdom come, we're asking God would deliver on his promises to save his people and to bring full and perfect justice, judgment on those who have persisted in rejecting him. So we shouldn't be surprised by God's judgment because he is simply being faithful to his promises. Well, as just as we shouldn't be surprised by God's judgment, in the next chapter, chapter 25, which we had read out, we see that we shouldn't treat God's judgment lightly. We're at point two on your handouts. Chapter 25 outlines the actual destruction of Jerusalem and the Judeans being taken into exile in Babylon. 
And it's brutal. I wonder if you noticed some of the details as it was read out. See, verses 1 and 2 tell us it was a 16-month siege. I can't even imagine that. I mean, we thought a couple years of lockdown was bad. And they were. But imagine if you were under siege for that amount of time, surrounded. You stay, you die slowly, you leave, you die quickly. That's not all, though. Keep looking with me. Did you notice what happened to Zedekiah? Their king, Zedekiah, is brutally removed. After Jerusalem is broken into, Zedekiah and the warriors flee, but the Babylonians catch up to him. Look at verse 7. This is verse 7 of chapter 25. They slaughtered Zedekiah's sons before his eyes. Finally, the king of Babylon blinded Zedekiah, bound him in bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. The last thing he's ever going to see is his sons being killed. That's a brutal way to go. But sadly, that's not even all of it. There is just widespread destruction. Look halfway through verse 8. You've got Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guards, a servant of the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. He burned the Lord's temple, the king's palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. He burned down all the great houses. They're just going on an absolute wrecking spree. But as if that wasn't enough, they go through with a fine-tooth comb. Did you see that special treatment that the Lord's temple gets from verse 13? Did you hear about some of the things getting carried away? The wick trimmers, the dishes, right? Everything of any value is dismantled, destroyed, and plundered. And then lastly, we see what happens to the other leaders, right? Verse 18. The commander of the guards also took away Sariah the chief priest, Zephaniah the priest of the second rank, and the three doorkeepers. And he took away court official, and so on, and so on. They take away these other leaders, and what do they do? They execute them. And so verse 12 tells us that only the poorest of the land were left. And it ends in verse 21, so Judah went into exile from its land. Now, if these details weren't brutal enough, we also need to remember the sad significance of all of these things. Remember, the land itself, right, this was promised all the way back in Genesis 12 to Abraham, and now they've been forcibly removed from it. The temple, this was God's presence among his people where all proper worship to God was focused and where sacrifices were made for sins. Without it, All those things are completely compromised, completely up in the air. And lastly, the king, right? God had promised to establish an eternal throne in the line of David. This was his promises to David back in 2 Samuel 7. And yet here the king is disgraced, removed, and imprisoned. And so if we've ever wondered if God will ever act on his promises to judge, we've seen that. But maybe you've wondered, well, what's the worst that he can do? What's the worst that's going to happen? God's judgment, who cares? Well, you're kidding yourself. 2 Kings 25 gives us a picture of desolation, destruction and poverty. But more than that, a real hopelessness, despair. You see, throughout Scripture, we have these moments where we see in graphic detail what God's judgment is like. I think they're almost like those warning pictures, the gruesome warning pictures on a cigarette pack or those speeding ads. Right? They, the point of those pictures is that you look at them, you see the consequences, 
You see the warning. But I think just like cigarettes or speeding, people don't really care, do they? People see it, they think, it won't happen to me. Or it won't be that bad. And look, while things like this exile are moments of judgment in their own right, each of these do point to that final day when Christ will return to judge the world. And it's not something to joke about. It's not something to wave off or to ignore. When Christ returns, those who have persisted in rejecting him, there won't be any laughing. And so I just want to ask whether this picture of judgment, its totality, its seriousness, its devastation, whether that changes your perspective. Because I think it should change our perspective on at least a couple of things. I think it should change our perspective on sin. You see, sin promises a lot, doesn't it? Rejecting God and living our own way, it can seem oh so fun, can seem oh so free. But at the end of the day, this is what it delivers. Destruction, slavery, death. And furthermore, this shows us just how seriously God hates sin, just how seriously God hates idolatry. I think when we read passages like this, often our gut reaction can be, well, you know, it seems a bit harsh, God. It seems a little bit over the top, right? But we're getting it completely wrong. We, we're we're minimising our sin yet again and we're failing to recognise just how bad it is to a perfectly holy God. You see, the wages of sin is death. And secondly, I think it changes our perspective on the lost. It changes our perspective on those who haven't yet trusted in Jesus. You see, sometimes I think I'm bothering people's otherwise pleasant lives with the gospel if, you know, if I'm thinking about sharing with them. You know, hey, sorry to bother you. But if a tsunami was about to level someone's house and they're ignorant to the fact, but you decide, oh, I don't want to knock, you know, what if I bother them? What if I upset them? What if I come across a little weird? See, whether or not they choose to act on what you say is something altogether different. But you've got to warn them, don't you? I think when we see God's judgment here, how serious it is, it changes our perspective on our sin and it changes our perspective on those who are under God's judgment. God's judgment should not be treated lightly. Now to end, uh, we're at point three on your handouts and this will be a little shorter than the other points. Though I guess if I I get fired for preaching too long then it's not the end of the world. Uh, But as we've seen, the destruction of Jerusalem, the removal of the king and the exile of the people, it's not just a physical devastation, even though it is, but it is a spiritual one as well. What do we make of God's promises of a people in the land under his rule and blessing? of a king on the throne of David forever? Has, has God's promise to judge just destroyed all the other promises? Are God's promises sort of colliding? Are they competing? Well, if we've seen anything today, I hope we've seen that God is always faithful to his word. His promises are unstoppable. And thankfully, there is more to the story than just two kings. In fact, there's more to the story into kings. So let's look at our last few verses from verse 27. And I'll read this out in length. So have a look from chapter 25, verse 27. 
On the 27th day of the 12th month of the 37th year of the exile of Judah's king Jehoiachin, in the year evil Merodach became king of Babylon, he pardoned king Jehoiachin of Judah and released him from prison. He spoke kindly to him and set his throne over the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes and dined regularly in the presence of the king of Babylon for the rest of his life. As for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king, a portion for each day for the rest of his life. We see Jehoiachin again. He was one of those three-month kings that we didn't really even talk about at all. But suddenly, we hear that he's alive in Babylon and he's not doing all that badly. And while people debate over, you know, how positive of an ending is this really, I mean, he's still in captivity in Babylon... And I think we can't call this a happy ending exactly. When we hold it against the sweep of Scripture, when we hold it against God's promises, it gives us a tiny glimmer, doesn't it? It kind of opens the door just that little bit for the potential for the story to continue. It's the ultimate cliffhanger, isn't it? You see, just as God is faithful in his promises to judge those who turn to him from idols, not to judge those, sorry, He is also faithful to his promise to establish the house of David forever. He's faithful to those great promises he made to his servant Abraham of a people and a land. Because this tiny door is left open, because of this little glimmer, hundreds of years after this exile, 14 generations in fact, as Matthew records it, that tiny glimmer becomes a great light. A great, 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 great grandson of Jehoiachin is born, one from the line of David, a son who is to be called Jesus. And it's in him that all the promises of God truly do collide, or probably more accurately, perfectly coexist. You see, how is it that God can hold true to his promise to judge sin and evil while still being faithful to his promises to make a people for himself? especially when his people are so rebellious, his people constantly sin. Well, we behold Jesus, our crucified King. We look to the cross where God's justice is poured out as well as his grace. Despite how depressing the end to two kings is, I think it's actually an incredible picture of the predicament of all humanity before God. You see, where did all the the grand history and striving of God's people ultimately get them? Well, it was far from God, far from his blessing. It was under his judgment, with next to no hope. But, but for God's unstoppable promises. But for the fact that God, in his incredible mercy and grace, despite all our sin and rebellion and stubbornness, that he remains faithful to his word and gives us a king we don't deserve, yet a king we desperately need. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this stark reminder of the seriousness of your judgment. But we thank you, Father, for the reminder that you are faithful to your promises, both to judge and to bless. We pray, Lord, that as we finish on this sad end in two kings, that you would help us to remember that but for Christ, we too would be under your judgment. But for Christ, we too would be in exile from you. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us now to turn to Jesus, to trust in him, 
and to enjoy the salvation that he brings. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.